Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is known as one of the most distinct vocalists in the history of rock. It's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee and lead singer of the band Yes, John Anderson. Widely regarded as pioneers of progressive rock, Yes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. Formed in London in 1968, Yes's sound is instantly recognizable by the band's jazz and rock playing and by John's singular alto tenor lead vocals. Yes's classic albums like the Yes album, Close to the Edge, Fragile, and 90125 are staples of classic rock libraries everywhere. And John co-authored the group's biggest hits, including I've Seen All Good People, Roundabout, and Owner of a Lonely Heart, which are known by music fans worldwide. In addition to his work with Yes, John has collaborated with Vangelis, Kitaro, and Jean-Luc Ponty, and has released many well-received solo albums. This conversation was recorded live at Atlantic Records in February 2019, shortly before the CD release of John's most recent solo album, 1,000 Hands. The album, 30 Years in the Making, features an amazing array of guest performers, including Alan White, Chris Squire, Steve Howe, Ian Anderson, and Chick Corea. give a formal warm welcome to John Anderson. It's always extra special for us to have somebody with a real connection to Warner Music Group, Warner Brothers, Warner Chapel, and in this case, Atlantic Records, where, yes, we're signed by Ahmed Erdogan in 1968. So 50-plus years ago. John Anderson has had a relationship with Atlantic Records, so that makes it, for me personally, that much more special that you're here, so thank you. Pleasure. And also, as a kid growing up in New York in the 70s, your music, both the Yes music, your solo music, your collaborative music, was the soundtrack of of my years growing up, so it's a special privilege for me personally to be able to sit here with you today, so thank you for that. I think that of all the artists that we've had here as part of this program, you are probably the most singularly unique in terms of your musicality. I was listening to A Thousand Hands, your new album. It's phenomenal. And John's been working on this album for 30 years. And you can hear what a labor of love this album is from note one. The minute that I heard your voice on this album, there was no there was no mistake, it could only be you, right? Especially the way that you use your voice. Up until the 
is it a banjo? Yeah. Up until the banjo comes in, all we're hearing is your voice. True. And when one of the biggest artists on Atlantic currently, right now, worldwide, is Ed Sheeran. If you oh. ever see Ed Sheeran perform, I know. He's amazing. he loops everything himself yeah. so that you'll see him in a stadium and it's him. I know. With the pedals. So when you see something like that, were you, did you invent this? No. Did somebody do it before you with the stacking of the harmonies and using vocals as percussion? The pygmies. Pygmies in, in Congo, in West Africa, spend their life singing. It's part of their upbringing, beautiful indigenous beings who go out foraging. And they're, they're just, I saw a movie, a, a documentary a few years ago, 15 years ago, and I went, oh my God, they're singing all the time going, beep, beep, beep. I want to do that. So I started doing it every morning. I'd get up, make breakfast in bed with my beautiful wife, and then wash up. Best way to get on with your wife is to wash up. <laughs> and then go in my studio and get a groove happening, a very simple drum thing, and start doing... That's one track, next track, another. Just build it up and then start singing a melody or something like that. And that's how this song came about just about a year ago when I spent a week doing vocalizationing, as I call it. And this uh, track I sent to the producer of the album and uh, on his way over from uh, Orlando to China, he got on his computer and did all the music. Actually, you listen later, the music is ridiculously good. And he did it all on a computer. You were doing things with your voice 50 years ago, though. True. That I don't recall anyone apart from the pygmies that you mentioned. Well, at that um, time, I, I remember doing some chuck 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 which is actually monkey chants that are done in uh, Bali. And when I went to Bali, Somebody actually very early on of, of Yes's in, in initiation of rehearsing and stuff, some guy gave me a record of the monkey chant, the Balinesian monkey chant. And it's about 30 people in a circle chanting towards the middle and one guy in the middle being the sort of conductor with his voice and a, and a guy on a flute and a one drum. And all these guys are going cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. And then all of a sudden they jump cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-c
In terms of your earliest musical memories, mm -hmm. obviously the big band stuff that your parents danced yeah. to. And then I read something really interesting because we're going to keep coming back to how singular you are as a vocalist. One of your earliest influences was John Hendricks. Oh, God, yeah. Which makes a lot of sense <laughs> if you know what he sounds like and you know what yeah. you sound like. Yeah, Lambert, Hendricks and Ross were this trio. Uh, Annie Ross, Scottish girl, and uh, John and, and Lambert. I don't know who Lambert was, actually. But there were these three sort of very jazzified uh, singers who, you know, with a piano and a string bass, whatever, just sang these beautiful happenings you are vocalizing. John Hendricks came to see, yes, in the Marquee Club, which was a very famous rock and roll club in London. Everybody who is anybody in rock and roll has played in the Marquee Club from, yes, early was Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, just before, yes, played, Jimi Hendrix was playing there. And later on, U2 played there. Many people who became famous. So... We're doing a show and some guy comes up to me, who was the manager, John G, said, uh, John Hendricks is here, he wants to sing with you. And I said, who is he? And he said, well, he's a great jazz singer. So get him up on, come on. Hey, how you doing, man? You know, come on. And I was doing a song, which actually was a song by Buffalo Springfield, I think it was. Look at the sad goodbyes, everything is... Anyway, and he started jazzing me behind me, like echoing what I'm singing. The following week, we were going to play our first festival. In those days, there were not many festivals, but it was the Melody Maker Festival. Melody Maker being the magazine with all the music and musicians, you know. So I said, John, would you mind getting up and singing with uh, the band, you know? Actually, I needed some help because <laughs> I was scared, very scared. And this guy had this sort of power to him. You know, I could sense it when I stood next to him. And... Uh, we did the same song, and he's doing his jazz licks and stuff around the song. Look at the sad goodbyes, everything He was brilliant, and uh, we went down very well, and we got an incredible ovation, and we got one of the stars when they did the, the Melody Maker review of the shows. He said, oh, yes, and yes, we're really great. <laughs> and they didn't mention John, John Hendricks, I don't know why, but... But it's amazing that John Hendricks, as a singer, was really an instrumentalist who used his voice, voice as an instrument. Yeah, ridiculously good. Which we could say about John Anderson. Well, you grow into things, you know. When you were growing up, did you always want to be a professional singer or did no. you want to be an athlete? I wanted to play football for my local team, which is a very famous team for one thing only. It's a team called Accrington Stanley. I'm from a town called Accrington, just 30 miles north of Manchester and not far from Liverpool. And Accrington, this is not going to do anything for you, but it's true. Accrington was one of the first 11 teams that created the first league of football in the world. And uh, along Accrington, Manchester, Liverpool, Arsenal and various other ones. There was only 11 teams. This is 18, 1897, uh, I think, something like that. So his claim to fame was that they were one of the first to create a team and then be part of a league, the first league. And obviously around the world you have leagues all the time now, but they were the first. And Stanley was Lord Stanley who created the game, supposedly. And I wanted to be a footballer 
And in fact, all I did for the first uh, years of my life was to go and be a ball boy, which is when they're playing football and the ball goes over the stand and you go running around and go and get the ball and put it back into play and things like that. But I was too small to be a footballer at that time. So my, bro my brother had a band called the Warriors and uh, he asked me to join them because we used to deliver milk around our town from the local farmer. That was our job every weekend. We sang Everly Brothers songs all the time. He sang some Elvis's songs, because the way he was, he thought he looked like Elvis. But we did Everly Brothers songs. And then he asked me to join the band, and I thought, well, that'd be a cool idea. Why not? And then- uh, He's so, delivering milk. So I had to still deliver milk until <laughs> I was 17. <laughs> But, you know, I was 16 or 17 when I, when I joined the band. And in fact, it was 1963 that uh, my brother Tony said, why don't we go and see the Beatles? Because they just released a song called Love Me Do. And it was quite a big moment in, uh, in the history of music because uh, up until then, you'd have Cliff Richards and the Shadows. You mentioned somebody before. Uh, and it was always a lead singer and the band. <laughs> lead singer, band. Girl singer, band. But this was a band, four people from Liverpool, you know. It was a shock to most young people that they could become famous and have a record out, for one thing. And it became like this co-celebrity in, in England that these, these guys were going to make it big. So we went to see them, me and my brother. It was very interesting to go to a pretty big hall. There's about... I think there's about 700 people there, mostly guys, but at the front with a lot of girls. Now, nobody screamed or anything because you could hear the band play and they did all their first album. We just loved them. You know, we, and there were posters, merchandise, posters and records, and their album was there. And so from that moment, you wanted to be a Beatle and you used to start talking like that, like he was from Liverpool. You had to talk a bit like that, you know. And dress like and, that? Yeah, I got a Beatle coat. You know, wear suits, you know, suits. It's true. And from then on, you just wanted to be a Beatle or make it in this world. And uh, you never know what's going to happen in life. So you were singing with your brother's band. Yeah. And then you started singing on demos for a producer who was affiliated with EMI. Is that right? There was EMI and eventually it was Decca. Decca Records in London. They got us to go down to London and make a record. Because we were, we were playing in clubs and also working men's clubs, which are very famous. Working men's clubs in England were just a bunch of louts who drank a lot and they just wanted to see the stripper. And they would play bingo and then the band would come on into three songs and they'd get off, you know, and the comedian's coming on and then another stripper. And that was life, you know. And somebody was in the crowd who was connected with Decca and said, uh, we'd like you to come down and do a recording which we did. So tell everybody who Hans Christian was. Um, you know, you're in London. You know, I was with the Warriors for about um, five years. And then, you know, you get to that point, we just uh, had 1967 had happened and the Beatles had done uh, Sgt. Pepper. The whole musical world went sky high with, uh, before that, Eleanor Rigby and Revolver. And then this amazing album and Jimi Hendrix and all, all these things were happening musically 
and I couldn't get my band out of bed to rehearse. And it really pissed me off, you know, and I'd go in there at 10 in the morning, come on, guys, let's rehearse, because I had so many ideas, I'd take an acid. <laughs> Paul McCartney took acid, so I'm going to take acid, right? If he can, come on, you know. That was in Hamburg. We were living in a brothel, because you have to. <laughs> because <laughs> it's over the top of the club and that's all you get and you're living in bunks you know but you know it's rock and roll and uh so i eventually i left them and i went to live uh in uh in uh with a couple of groupies who looked after me because i couldn't speak very well because i'd lost my mind and uh that night i arrived in munich and they said hey we're going to go and see Jimi hendrix he's just going to do a a show in this club so I went uh, with them and uh, and I watched Jimi Hendrix play like he was here and I was standing there going what the is this it was unbelievable this guy was seriously unbelievable as a guitar player and the band was really a couple of white guys playing but Jimi Hendrix was like this enormous energy and very sexy as well the women were going oh my god I want this you know, it was like, the music was fantastic. And we all went back to the, the groupie's apartment. And lo and behold, Jimi Hendrix comes in with the band. <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting in the corner with my kaftan and my beads and my bells. And <laughs> I can't speak. I couldn't speak. And he looks over at me and I go... And he comes over, he sits down, and he rolls the biggest joint, and we smoked a joint together. Without you saying a word? I couldn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was mesmerized, you know? And I met him later on in London. It was an amazing moment when, when, when I met him in a club. Because Rassan Roland Kirk was playing at this jazz club, and I was a big fan of Rassan Roland Kirk. Anybody know Roland Kirk? Incredible man, incredible man. He was doing a show with the trio in the Ronnie Scott's Club in London. I was sitting there with Chris Squire. We just met and started Yes and things like that. And I turned around and Hendrix walks in with his guitar. And, and he looked at me and went, Munich. I said, it's me, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. And he got up with Roland Kirk and he showed me what jazz was all about. And they played for an hour. Wow. And they screamed and played and screamed and played for an hour without thinking and that was pure jazz wow so what was the question <laughs> <laughs> well i was oh, asking yeah, about hans christian, christian. i got around it you see i didn't want to go there but when before i met chris and started yes i i would really you know you get into that situation musicians will do anything to survive not everything but they'll do a lot of things to survive and this guy who was living in an apartment below me was a was a record producer he was the grandson of Alexander Korda, who did the great movies with Charles Lawton. You know, uh, I think he did uh, Rembrandt. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. So yeah, he was a producer for um, EMI. And he just said, uh, do you know anything about the association? I said, mm, I know a couple of good songs, yeah. He says, well, I'm going to re-record Never My Love. I don't know if you know Never My Love. Uh, it's a really well-known association song and uh so let's go in and record you so i said okay not thinking do i get paid no no, no. <laughs> yes I'll, I'll, I'll sing anything what do you what do you want and so 
they signed me up and they said, John Anderson, is that your name? I said, yep. Can we call you Hans Christian Anderson? I said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose, you know? So I sang it and it became a record and didn't do anything, but I had a silly haircut. I remember I had more hair up here than ever. Very high collar, trying to look like a Hans Christian Andersen, I suppose. But that was that lasted five minutes, and then I met Chris in the bar that I was working in. What what attracted you and Chris to each other musically? Do you think? Well, he was taller than me, which was good, and we talked about um, Simon and Garfunkel a lot. He was at one end of the bar, and I was cleaning the bar, this bar, which was next to a very famous rock and roll club called the Marquee Club. And I'd be cleaning and washing the glasses, and, and you know, I'd get free food and uh, drinks. The guy that ran the bar said, hey, John, that guy in the corner, he was standing there, and he says he's a very good bass player, he's got a band, go and ask him if they want a singer, because he knew I, I was trying to find a band, you know. So I walked over to Chris, and I said, Chris, because he was six foot three. He still is, <laughs> even in heaven, because he passed away a couple of years ago. We just talked about Paul Simon's songs and Simon and Garfunkel's album, Bridge Over Troubled Waters and that kind of thing, just uh, in passing. And then he said, uh, I have a band. Do you want to come and try out with the band? And we went to his apartment and we wrote a couple of songs that came actually recorded and put on the first album. And were the other guys in his band guys who you eventually worked with or didn't no. work with? Well, right away, um, we'd written a song called Sweetness, which was on the first album. And uh, so I thought there was a future here and got to the first rehearsal and the drummer hadn't turned up. And uh, the guitarist, Peter Banks, said, oh, drummer's left. He's, he's gone to a band in Paris because they're going to pay him. Because we had no money, you see. See, if I... So he off, he'd gone to work with a band in Paris and get paid, which is cool. <laughs> so we thought, what are we going to do? Uh, I said, well, let's look in the Melody Maker, this magazine. So we'll look at the Melody Maker. Like, drummer, drummer, looking. Drummer with Ludwig kit <laughs> and a van looking for a band. I said, well, he's in. Because <laughs> he's Ludwig kit are the best, you know. And he's got a van. I can't believe this. So we phoned him up. Hello? Is that Bill Bruford? Bill? Yes. Do you want to come and join the band? Yes. What's the band called? I said, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> he said, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And he came the day after with his Lugwig kit, which wasn't the Lugwig kit. It was a cheap kit with Lugwig painted on the front. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody wants a gig, you see? So we played, and he had a jazz feel as well as rock. Jazz rock feel. But him and Chris were happening, you know, so he joined the band. And uh, his van was a minivan. It was a very small van, <laughs> so that's the way it works, you know. And then how did Mabel's Toy Shop become Yes? Well, I kept saying it's too long, the name. When I think about it, just a couple of weeks ago, I thought we could have called ourselves Mabel Greer's Toy Shop MGTS. MGTS would have been a good name for the band. But uh, in those days, we just said, let's, let's, let's call it Life. And Chris said, no, let's call it World. And, and uh, <laughs> Peter Banks, the guitarist, said, let's just call it Yes. What, the, the Yes? <laughs> no, Yes. <laughs> I said, are you sure? So we sort of pondered it for five minutes and said, yeah, why not? 
So we called ourselves yes. So you mentioned, you mentioned Peter Banks yeah. and Bill Bruford and Tony Kaye rounded out mm-hmm. the original lineup. Mm-hmm. As much as Yes has been known for its musicality, Yes has also been known for how many members have been in Yes over the years. They come, they go, they come, they go. Do we have that slide that we can show? Good. So we found this great slide that's a family tree, like I from Ancestry.com of Yes, and it's hundreds and hundreds of iterations of the I know. Band. Well, it's not so much. It's basically somebody would uh, leave the band and then join another band, so the tree got bigger because of the other band, and then there's another band over here, another band over there, and they're all interconnected. But the thread was very, very simple. Maybe uh, you know musicians because you work in the music business, but your musicians are very... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, lazy. <laughs> but they want to be stars. They don't want to work in it. You know, they're going to work for it. But when we started, yes, you know, I was very, very committed to working hard. And, you know, let's rehearse. you got to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. Come on, you know. And I say this to young musicians when I work with them. I always say three things about music you got to do. you got to practice, practice, and then practice. And you'll get far. And that was what the band was all about, working very, very hard uh, every minute of every day. And if somebody doesn't want to turn up for a rehearsal, there's a problem. And that started to happen. So you get a feeling like, well, this guy's not that into it. Or maybe he doesn't like the way the music's going, what we're trying to do. And so you decide, okay, we've got to change and get another person in place of that. See, most bands came from a town, Liverpool, Beatles, uh, the Hollies were a famous band from Manchester, uh, the Animals were very famous, they were from Newcastle. We were from every part of England, we weren't coming from the same town, so we didn't have the same bloodline or something. So we didn't feel, we have to keep the guy in because his mum will come and kill us, you know. Uh, no. Damn, if you're not going to turn it up for rehearsals, man, think about it. You give them a couple of chances, you know, and if not, just say, okay, got to find somebody else. And we did that every other, every other year for a while. In fact, we did that for, every, for the last 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> you're either in or you're not in. Come on, you know. So at what point um, <laughs> after the band formed and you got the name Yes, yeah. did you do that showcase for Amit? It wasn't long after. It's probably six months into the band's very interesting thing happened. We were all living in one house in different rooms. And uh, I got a phone call from this guy who later became our manager, the Roy Flynn guy, who knew where we were and he phoned up and said, I hear you, you're John Anderson? I said, yeah, where's the band? I said, well, we're all here in the house. He said, well, can you get them together tonight? Our main act hasn't turned up. And we've been rehearsing for over a couple of months. So we, we were pretty good. We got really organized, you know. So the main band hadn't turned up. I said, okay. So we'll be there at 10 o'clock and we set up, we started setting up. And I said, who was the main band? And he said, Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> so we're... Depping for flying, flying the family stone. You got to be kidding. So no, it'd be all right. Don't worry. I said, well, pass some joints around or something, you know. <laughs> and people started coming in that were pretty famous. Uh, you, you won't know the names, but Keith Emerson came wandering in, and well, they know the I don't name. know. They know the name. I don't know. And uh, 
I was up there getting my microphone ready and, and, and he'd seen me up in the club upstairs cleaning glasses. He said, John, I didn't know you were in the band. I said, yeah, you got yes tonight. So here's a joint. <laughs> <laughs> and then all the, and Pete Townsend would come in, you know, and all of a sudden, Paul McCartney's in the back. And all these people who were very, waiting for Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> so I said, free drinks, <laughs> free to, drinks on the house. Which they weren't, of course. Um, so everybody got very joyful and happy about it all. Listen, we're not that good, but just have a good time. Sorry. Uh, Sly got caught up with some drug problems in Newark. <laughs> Instead of flying here. That was the truth. And so we played, and we played good, because we were panicking. You know, when you, when you play in front of all these great musicians, you panic. And panic makes you play better for some reason. And we did a good show. And the manager of the club, on his 10th whiskey, said, I think I want to manage this band. And he did. He started to manage us. It's true. And there's more stories than that. The first time I met Armand Ertigan and Roy Flynn, our manager, was pretty well known. He had a club called The Speakeasy in London, which was a very famous club. What happened was um, he, he suggested that we do a lunchtime session for Arma Ertigan, which we had no idea who he was, you know. He said he's from Atlantic Records from New York. So we said, okay, how many songs? We'll just do three or four, three or four is enough. So we got organized and we did a sound check and then Arma came in, this dapper, great looking guy from New York City. It was amazing to see this guy walking in and he sat down and sort of smiled, kind of look on his face. Who are you? Why am I here? Sort of look. And uh, so we did a couple of songs, and we thought we were pretty good. And uh, said thank you, we shook hands, and uh, Armit stayed there. And so I wanted to go to the, to the bathroom, you know. So I put my guitar away, and then uh, proceeded to go to the restroom. I couldn't find it, it was somewhere around here. Oh, there it is. So I went to the restroom and I'm standing there having a pee. And uh, Roy Flynn comes up beside me and he's so excited. John, I'm going to screw this guy. I'm going to get you so much money. This guy hasn't got a chance. I'm going to get you the best deal with this fucking company. <laughs> and just at that moment, the toilet flushed. <laughs> and out walked Armour Ertigan. <laughs> with a big smile on his face. <laughs> and he signed us up for 10 years at 2% or 3% of the money. The everlasting contract. But I must say, Ahmed was the father figure for me, really. My father died about 10 years earlier, and uh, Ahmed was like really father figure for me for many, many years, and uh, I was able to see him in his last year on this planet. And uh, we always had a really fond relationship because he, he trusted my judgment. What do you remember about recording the first album? Again, I wasn't really uh, a bit scared more than anything. I didn't like my voice. I thought I didn't sing that well. I was a bit, you know, mortified that I had to sing. Uh, the band sounded okay, a little, a little tinny at times. Um, it didn't sound as warm as I'd expected, um, but I wasn't 
near the uh, the engineer, let the engineer get on with it. And uh, then I sang the songs very tentatively because I wasn't used to singing in a studio. And then I'd go in and, and sort of listen to it and think, it's not that good, what am I going to do? But they seemed to like it, so I said, okay, you know, I'm not going to argue and double-track myself a couple of times, and it sounded okay. And then Chris came in, beautiful singer, Chris Squire, singing harmonies. And all of a sudden, it took on this life of its own, and uh, it sounded pretty cool. I had read that around the same time, King Crimson started playing, and it <laughs> made you want to up your game as musicians. Oh, the memory. Well, there was a speakeasy club that we played in, and we went there six months later, maybe a year later, and we'd actually done our first uh, recordings. We'd heard about King Crimson. There were three bands around at that time. There's King Crimson, Led Zeppelin, and, and a couple of other ones. There was a lot of talk about them, because I knew Robert Plant from a band called Listen that I'd met years ago up in uh, Newcastle. I knew he was in a band with uh, a couple of good musicians and stuff. So basically, uh, Anybody know King Crimson in the corner? Right. Well, imagine listening to that all the way through, because that's what they did. They were they set up, and we were all standing around. I was standing next to Chris, and we're all standing around, and they started. Man, it was unbelievably good. All the vocals, everything was so cool. Bob Fripp sitting on a stool, looking too cool. I was in shock at how good they were. And the music was very vibrant and very, energy was very happening, very, very good. And I looked at Chris and said, we better start rehearsing hard now, because this is not good enough. They're too damn good, you know? And that's when I went in to rehearsal and said, come on, we gotta get our act together and work, work harder, because there are good bands around. You know, and that's always been the case from then on. You listen to other bands and you, you, you reflect on how good they are compared to where you are. And I think that's what helped uh, Yes to have find its own style of music. Because about that time I started listening very carefully to uh, Gustav Holst and uh, Sibelius. Sibelius came later, but sort of popular classics and wondered how they did it. And it was all to do with shape and structure and the stanza, and then this happens, and then that happens. And that's when I started stretching out the imagination of the music, as one does. So competition is a good thing. Damn right. Because about, sorry, 30 years later, we saw Mavi 20 years later, maybe more or less than that, we saw Mavishnu Orchestra, and that really <laughs> kicked us out the butt, you know. So in 1971, the Yes album is considered to be the band's breakthrough album. Yeah. So talk about Steve Howe joining the band and what he contributed. Again, I was in the speakeasy. <laughs> There's a recurring theme here, as you see. I knew the girl was in the bar. That's all there is to it. And uh, so I'd walk past this band. And nobody was watching. It was empty. It was very early. And this band was playing. And this guy with this more beautiful Gibson guitar was seriously going for it, you know, and the band was just rocking. But this guy seemed to have a... a energy about him. And I found out his name was Steve Howe, and uh, that was the time that we realized we needed to change the guitarist. And then we approached Steve Howe, he came in, and he started playing uh, Rodrigo, 
was classic Spanish guitar, you know, kind of thing, as well as jazz, fusion, rock. He could play anything. And I fell in love with him and couldn't stop thinking about working with this guy and writing music with this guy because he has so many, he knew so many chords. You know, usually we know five or six chords. This guy knew chords up the wazoo, you know. So it even becomes internal competition in the band because you see somebody like that playing so well, mm -hmm. it's going to inspire you to mm -hmm. just be better at your own craft. Yeah, and you start writing new songs right away. You start coming up with new ideas. You know, you can you can place him in some of Chris's really artful bass playing because Chris Squire was a ri ridiculously good bass player for one thing, very powerful, but also so melodic. And you could hear a piece, and that's just Steve. Can you double in with that, or play a third, a harmony with him, and then get into that something? That's how we made music. What's amazing is that the Yes album, side one, track one. Yours is no disgrace. And there's a story there. The guys uh, were working on uh, a theme. I'd heard, I'd heard this theme. Da, 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 And I said, okay, they were working on the theme and but didn't have an introduction. So I was watching a TV show and it's called uh, Somebody of Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard is a police uh, headquarters in London. And the music went dun, 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 dun. It did. So, so I wandered in. I said, how are you doing, guys? I've got this idea. <laughs> Actually, music is like, uh, musicians are like bees. You, you cross pollinization all the time. It's not that you steal from each other, you actually learn from each other and you hear stuff and you grab a little bit of that from that. And that's the truth, you know. Yesterday a morning came a smile upon your face. Caesar's palace morning glory city human race. On the sailing ship to nowhere, leaving any place. If the summer changed to winter, yours is no disgrace. The other songs on that album, the Yes album, Starship Trooper, I've yeah. Seen All Good People. Mm -mm. Did it feel, did you know what you had when you were doing? Did it feel like a lightning bolt went off in the studio? Well... The reason we were doing this music was because I told the guys that we can't go in a studio again until we know the music, because that's what we were doing the first two albums, and it was a little bit untogether. So I said, why don't we rent a farm in Devon, far away as we come from the city, and live together, work together, be together. And all the songs came from that experience that we're actually a unit. In fact, we went on tour playing these songs before we recorded them, which actually is the, probably the best way to do music, really. But, you know, these days you go and create a, an album in a studio, you can create an album in your backyard in a, in, in, in a, on a computer and logic. And that's what I do all the time anyway. If you're able to road test the songs, you can get instant feedback. Yeah, you, you, that's what happened with Starship Trooper and all these songs from that album, because we'd already started playing them on stage.
we got some feedback. We're playing songs that people knew from when we were doing America, you know, Paul Simon song, and uh, songs that people knew from the first couple of albums. We picked out the cherry, the good ones, and then we played a couple of new ones, and he tests it out with the audience. And by then, we actually started getting an audience that wanted to come and see us rather than, oh, who is this, you know? They came to see yes, you know, and there was a lot of interest in the band. It's just the way things go, you know. Um, the intro of I've Seen All Good People. I mean, that is so seminal. Like, everybody of a certain age in this room knows that. It's like well, you were almost you. born just... knowing that song. <laughs> well, You know, the acapella intro, was that your idea? Yeah. So the idea was, um, it's interesting how a, a drummer and a bass player will play riffs. You know, dum 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 same same chord all the time. Like an hour later, they're still playing this. Guys, why do you change the dun 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 dun? Okay, we change key. Okay, John. I said, because try one more time. Da da da, another key, another key, and I da 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 Go back to the first one. Dun 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 dun. You know. You make it up as you go along. And then we did a version of it uh, in rehearsal um, in, in the farm. And uh, we tape, had a tape recorder. And I, and I wrote down, I've seen all good people turn their heads each day and satisfy them on my way. Because it sounded like I was singing that anyway. So that's what we had. Then we had the song finished on a big chord and then, da -da 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 -da, and then the band come in twice around the riff and then we start singing. So there's a catchy sort of thing. And then I just said, why don't we just sing it a cappella at the beginning? And they said, okay, because it was me, Chris, and Steve. We really had a blend. And it sounded really cool. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day So satisfied I'm on my way I've seen all good people turn their heads each day So satisfied I'm on my way How important was uh, Eddie, Eddie Offer, to all this? Really important. Because Eddie had worked on the second album as an engineer. And we loved him. He was, he was like a little, little elf. <laughs> Something about him was so sweet. Eddie's a, a producer on, on this album and, and many other Eddie became the yes producer. Albums. He became part of the band. And uh, Eddie Offer was like, uh, you know, one of those guys, real hippie-type character and... Uh, really talented because you listen to these recordings like this one and fragile and close to the edge magnificent recordings just incredible you know so the next cast of character to enter the uh, fray <laughs> is rick wakeman what can yeah, you because, talk about rick? well we went on tour with uh, jethro tell and we toured uh, america the first tour of america with uh, ian anderson and jethro tell and it was incredible to see this guy performing ian anderson was uh, consummate lead singer, flute player, dancer, trickster, character on stage, where I was there with a the little tambourine, very, very shy, you know. So I learned a hell of a lot from Ian. The keyboard player, Tony Kay, I just remember that uh, Tony really wasn't, he just wasn't advancing musically, he wasn't interested in Mellotron or uh, extra keyboards. He was a great uh, B3, Hammond B3 player, 
But I wanted sort of string section coming up in this next part of the song and things like that, you know, as one does. As you're a musician, you want other sounds, you know, and he wasn't interested. So we'd seen Rick Wakeman. We'd done a show with this band called the Strobes in um, York, in England. And there's this young blonde god with a, I don't know if he had a cape. I don't think he had a cape. He has one now. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, but he was, he was so good. And he had extra keyboards and harpsichord sounds and strings. And, and I watched him before we went on. And I looked at Chris and said, that's what we want, that kind of sound. So I asked Tony if he wouldn't mind getting some extra keyboards. And he said, no, it's okay. I don't want to do that. So, okay. So on the way home, Chris and Steve came over and said, we should get Rick in the band. I said, I think so, yeah. So the thing about Rick is Rick was able to move between the grand piano, Mellotron, Moog, and, and really help up the cinematic scope of the music Serious. Well, just like um, Steve could play some classical guitar, Rick could play anything from jazz to Bach to this and that and the other. He could play anything. He was a ridiculously good player and still is. Quite an amazing player. So it's amazing. As you add these musicians, each album takes on a different flavor and characteristic. Yeah. So yeah. the next album, Fragile, considered one of the most classic rock and roll albums of all time. So Roundabout becomes a legitimate hit on yeah. American radio. Yeah, which was actually eight minutes long. And we didn't know that uh, the powers that be in New York had got a big pair of scissors and cut it in half to make it into a single we didn't know until we were driving down a road in Pennsylvania and Roundabout came on and we said, hey, Roundabout, I can't believe it. All of a sudden it went from, it was just back into the solo. What happened? What happened to the middle bit? So we got on the phone and said, what happened to the middle bit? They said, well, we don't make records that are eight minutes long as a single. So we had to cut it in half. And we said, and they said, you know, it's going to be a hit. Don't worry. I said, okay. I'll be the right. Like you said, there was a bastardized edit from eight and a half to three and a half. Yeah. But how did how did that feel? All of a sudden, you're, you're coming in. It's one thing to be an album act. It's another thing to have a hit single. Right. It boosted everything. But we still played the long version. <laughs> True. But now that you're you're coming back with more albums and yeah. more hits, yeah. you're playing to more people. True. How was that, the touring of America back then? It was remarkable because you're playing in front of 10,000 people, arenas and things like that. We tour with the LP and then you start playing 20,000 people. We were playing at um, Madison Square Gardens and things like that. Remember the first time that you played the garden? No. <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm trying to think. Um, no. I hope that everyone is understanding the the breadth and the impact of this man's work and his his band's work. I'm starting to understand. Yeah, well, you know, that's why we have you here. Thank there. you very much. So after Fragile, another classic, all-time classic album, Close to the Edge. So this album only has three songs on it. True. One's 18 minutes. True. One's 10 minutes. True. One's nine minutes. True. Did the label have a heart attack when you gave them an album with three songs? <laughs> 
what happened to the band? Why are they not doing a song like Roundabout again? You know, kind of feeling, you know, it was a big argument going on between the band, uh, not the band, so the management and the uh, record company. And, and I just said, listen, we're going to do what we're going to do. I don't, I don't give a shit. I honestly don't, you know. Roundabout wasn't, you know, made like it was, but it made us a hit and it gave us a bigger audience. Now we can play the music I believe we should be playing. And uh, by hook or by crew, that's what we did. And it was a big hit? It was a massive hit. It was, a, it was, it was phenomenal. You know, you're playing at Mad it's just the way life can be. You're playing at Madison Square Gardens, 20,000 people, and we're doing this. You can hear a pin drop. Anybody was ever there, they could, it was so quiet. It was the opposite to where we are now with music. It was so quiet, 18 minutes long, the, close to the edge. It was so amazing to do. Let's talk about your lyrics for a second. Where do you get your ideas? To me, lyric writing can be one way or the other. One way is to do it the logical way where you hear the melody, you create the melody, and then you, you figure out, well, the, this could be nice. This is a poetic way of singing the song or whatever. What I do, I sing as though I know what I'm singing about. So it's so strange. But then I start to hear what I'm singing about if I listen to the first take. I think it was that jazz, jazz influence I got from Hendrix and Roland Kirk that they actually did stuff that was unimaginable. You could never write it down. It just happens, you know? And that's when I started doing it early on. I started just mimicking an idea and then I'd listen very closely to what I was trying to sing. A man conceived a moment's answers to a dream. That's what it sounded like, so I write it down. So I'd, always, I'd, I'd sing the song through as a, as a test to the song, and then I'd listen to it very closely and kind of figure out how the lyrics are. They're in there subtly, there, there they are. You get into the bigger piece of music, and the reason I wanted to do a big piece of music because I started listening to Sibelius. Gene Sibelius, to me, one of the greatest uh, composers of all time, just my honest opinion. He's from Finland and has written uh, seven symphonies. And I heard his seventh symphony once uh, when I was on tour. I'd listened to his music while I was reading Lord, Lord of the Rings. And the seventh symphony is virtually 27 minutes long. And it is so unimaginably beautiful. You don't realize that it took 27 minutes to play because it's just something that seeps inside you. And you go through the experience and then it finishes and you think... Wow, it's amazing because most music, classical music, was in three parts. They do the first movement, second movement, third movement. He actually did a whole symphony that lasted 27 minutes long. And that's when I thought, that's, that's where you got to go. How do you get there? Well, you go, you start with the stanza and then the, the verse and the chorus and go back to the stanza and then the verse and the chorus and get into the middle section. So you structure it. 
And that's where we were when we were doing this album. I was very interested in structure. And uh, what I don't want to bore you, but music can be very uh, unbelievable. So you get involved in that, sorry. What tends to come first for you? That depends, you know, uh, I think uh, the song Close to the Edge, Round by the Corner, Steve was singing it one day. Close to the edge, round by the corner, and the And I said, no, no, it'll go. Close to the edge, round by the corner, down at the edge, round by the river. Seasons will pass you by, I get up. And he followed me. Thank you. Perfect. What's the next part? And the next part was uh, the stanza that we started using at the front, which was a season which could call you from the depths of your disgrace, from rearrange your liver to the solid mental grace, and achieve it all with music that came quickly from apart. That's a stanza. It's like a, 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 a chant sort of thing. So many albums that were still to come, Tales from Topographic Oceans, a uh, concept, full-on concept album. Yeah. Relayer. Yeah. Another, Case of Delirium. Another three-song album. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any recollections of those? Very much, because uh, after we'd done this long-form piece of music, uh, Close to the Edge, I wanted to do four of them in one go. Because, you know, you're stretching your imagination, you're stretching the, the audience to be able to listen to that kind of music. So where do you go next? You, do you go back to square one and start doing short songs? Um, the record company would have been happy if we'd have done that. But I was uh, head fast into doing something on a larger scale, and that was called, uh, eventually it's called Tales from Topographic. It was four 20-minute pieces of music. It got heavily criticized, and uh, we probably lost half of our fans. But... I was more interested in the experience and the adventure of doing something that had never been tried before. Was that influenced by Sibelius, do you think? No, I think it was a bit of madness. <laughs> it was. It was something that I, I fervently felt very bad about for a few years, but got on with life. But you do that when you try to go well, somewhere. You're an artist, and yeah, an artist you have to needs go to through create. Some, yeah. Do you remember a 1976 tour that you did with Peter Frampton? I sure do. You played for 100,000 people in Philadelphia? Yes, in Philadelphia. And the stage sets were as intricate yes. as the music. Yeah, because we were playing to 20,000 people, generally 15,000 people. So it sounds pretty cool, mm-hmm. but we were. But what you needed to do was to project. There was no LED lights or LED, you know screens or anything. So we had Roger Dean, who actually uh, did the album covers, him and his brother to design uh, elaborate staging and dry ice and project it out to those people who've paid the money and way up at the top there and you want to project to them as much as you can. And that's why we got into uh, theater in a way. How important was Roger Dean, do you think, to the whole year? Extremely, yeah. You know, uh, when when he first got involved with the band was uh, an album called Fragile, he did The World and then Close to the Edge. Topographic and Relayer. And uh, I just thought it was a very good um, stamp of uh, artistic stamp to the band, you know, the, the word of yes and everything like that to project it out, you know. And obviously, business would say, hey, you know, it's good for merch. You know? <laughs> 
And it was, but it wasn't the, the, the yes, idea. The Yes logo is one of the most iconic logos of all time. True, true. So let's fast forward a little bit because we can be here all night. We can be here all night. So let's fast forward to 1980. Now it's time for somebody else to leave the band. This time it's you. Me, I got to get out of here. (laughs) There's too much cocaine around. I hated it. They want to do that. They want to get involved in anything like creepy like that. You know. So you're 12 years into this band that has changed your life. Yeah. And you leave. Yeah. That must have been a complete sea change for you. Well, you know, basically, I just felt that I wanted to get out of Dodge, you know. It wasn't doing me any good at all trying to manipulate, not manipulate, but try to herding cats, you know. People who were not really into doing the, the, the work anymore, enjoying the celebrity of it, you know. But so, it, had, it had nothing to do with a lack of creativity on your part. God, because no, no, you no. still had a lot more to say. God, yeah. Either, you know, with or without, yes. Yeah. I went to the uh, south of France and met uh, Marc Chagall. I don't know if anybody knows Marc Chagall. No? The Russian painter, artist, unbelievable man. 90 years old, I met him. I hung out with Bill Wyman, who's the funniest guy I've ever met. Bill Wyman was in the Rolling Stones. And uh, then he invited me to Chagall's 90th birthday. And I fell in love with this guy, and I made a musical about his life. I thought that's the way to go, you know. <laughs> and it's never been released, so it's going to be released soon, I believe, in my state of mind. Talk about Vangelis. Oh, boy. Well, somebody gave me a record, two records one day, around that time when, when I was making uh, plans to do other things. And two records I got, one was from a guy called Vangelis Papatanasu, and the other one was by a guy called Ilan Memoroglu. Now, Ilan Memoroglu used to work for Atlantic Records. He was a friend of Ahmed and Nezri, and he was an electronic musician. If you're interested in music on any kind of level, you should get his album, Wings of the Delirious Demon. It's an extraordinary piece of music, very electronic, it's most of it done with uh, clarinet and th- four tape recorders that he had set up that he could spin them around and do them backwards and do things. He showed me how he did it, and it, it blew my mind. It's extraordinary, wild, unattainable music. I just loved it. I met him in New York when he was recording uh, um, Charlie Mingus, Rassam Roland Kirk, Keith Jarrett at the Carnegie Hall. That's the first time I met him. And he was producing and recording them there for Atlantic Records for, I think, Blue Note. Was it Blue Note Records? I think that was the name of it. So getting back to Vangelis, this guy, the album that I heard was Creation du Monde, and it was this one-man orchestra. One of the first people that I'd seen, I saw a photograph of him with three, four, five, he had a keyboard up his sleeve, he had keyboards everywhere. But he had this incredible organic energy about him that fascinated me like crazy. He was the first guy who ever used laser beams. I have a picture of him with laser beams coming out from behind him. And uh, so I went to Paris to meet him and knocked on his door. I called him up first. (laughs) I called him up and said, "Uh, is that Vangelis? Hello. Vangelis? Yes. My name is John Anderson. I'm in a bank. Oh, yes. What's yes? I don't know yes. No, I'm in a band. I'm a singer. Oh, you're a singer. Come over. So I, <laughs> I went, went over to his house 
the apartment near the Champs-Élysées. And uh, he opened the door with a long kaftan on, a big beard, Greek man, and he had a bow and arrow, big bow and arrow around him. Hey, Johnny, how are you? And he gave me a hug. Hey, come on in. So and there was a long hallway way down to the main room. And I noticed there was a big bullseye by this TV and a little old man sitting next to the TV and a bullseye way down there. He says, what's this, Johnny? And he got his bow and arrow and it's... And the arrow went right through the window. <laughs> <laughs> I love this guy. You know? <laughs> I loved him. And uh, he you know, went into his room and he started playing the piano. Hey, Johnny, how are you? And Rick had just left the band. And I thought, Vangelis in Yes would be extraordinary. So I dragged him over to London to join Yes, and it was a bad fit. It wouldn't work because Vangelis was a one-man orchestra anyway. And I couldn't negotiate the whole situation. Anybody musician in here? Okay. Well, he said to Steve Howe, he said, you know, Steve Howe, you have a lovely guitar, but you know, electric guitar is not a real instrument, you know. <laughs> How to win friends, Vangelis. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that fell apart. But then he got a studio going in London and I became fast friends with him, and that's when we started to make records. Some of those records that you guys made together, that was my soundtrack in high school, wow. listening yeah. to I'll Find My Way Home. Mm. If, if you don't know this song, I was listening to it earlier today, getting ready for John, and I just had this big smile come on my face because I hadn't heard it in a while. True. But True. State of Independence. Oh, gosh, yeah. Then Donna Summer covers it, produced yeah. by Quincy Jones, producing yeah. your song. yeah. And the people that sang on it are the A to Z of great singers. Uh, there was uh, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, and about a dozen others. Um, All doing background? Diana Ross doing backup wow. vocals, yeah. So, and that's, that night, after they finished the... the you know, it, that's when they started... The, Lionel Richie was there, so Lionel, uh, Michael Jackson, and Quincy started organizing, and they, they wrote this song called We Are the World. Which wouldn't have happened if not for State of Independence. Damn right. There you go. So thank you, John Anderson. Thank you so much. Um, talk about Friends of Mr. Cairo. Whose idea was it with Whoa. the Hollywood pastiche? Me. I, well, you know, with Vangelis, it was very interesting uh, to know anything, anything about music. Uh, this was pure jazz, or I would call it chance music, because I would never, with Vangelis, I would never say, uh, well, you play something and, and I'll sing that song or whatever. No, I'd, I'd say, get my microphone ready. You play, record everything. He would play and I would start singing. And it was this mimicking. I'd start singing. My soul lost in my You asked me where did I fall? Which became, you asked me where did I fall? I'll, tell, I'll say, I can't tell you when. And if your spirit is strong, and it's the whole idea that um, I'll find my way home eventually. And we'll all find our way home eventually, because that's why we're here, to find our way home. So that was a song that was a very big hit in London, in England. And uh, it was magic to work with Angus, because we actually, if you know anything about recording, we only did one take. We didn't even do something and then do it again. What for? We do one take, 
and then we'd say, okay, that's it's actually right. So he would produce it, and I'd go off and start writing the lyrics. Glass of wine and start writing lyrics. I'd have headphones and listening to the song. And then he'd be producing it. And we'd write a couple of songs a day for a week. We had an album virtually. Within 10 days, we had the first album, which was short stories. And that's the way we had to work. It's the only way. It was the opposite to Yes. Yes was very structured. Organization, da-da-da-da, and we're we're going, da-da-da-da-da. Vangelis, it was smooth as silk. So uh, we started this uh, Friends of Mr. Cairo song, and uh, and it sounded like uh, a 30s gangster movie, you know. So all I could think was Mickey Spillane, you know. We came as in the sun, book Mickey Spillane. That Saturday night, our masquerade, it filled his frame with lead. My sweet, sweet, sweetheart, wasn't it? And we had uh, voiceovers doing uh, Cagney, Peter Laurie. It was, it was Mr. Cairo in the movie. It was based on a movie called The Maltese Falcon. And uh, that's where uh, Quincy told me, he said, we got your idea to do voiceovers for Thriller. Because, because we of did Friends it. of Mr. Yeah, Cairo. Yeah, Friends that's of Mr. Cairo. Polonizing like bees, you know. <laughs> everybody is stealing from everybody else. Why not? Why is borrowing? So then, fast forwarding a bit, you, I, I read two accounts of this. You either run into Chris Squire at a party or you get a call from Phil Carson, who was a guest here um, a year or so ago. Yeah. And they talk about a band called Cinema. Right. Tell everybody. It was Phil about Carson. That. He was a good friend of the band and he worked for Atlantic Records. And uh, he'd found uh, ACDC. He found them. So he called me and said, Look, the, the guys are making a really great album. You, you got to listen to it. And I said, well, tell Chris to call me because I'm, I'm going to be in London this weekend. So I went to London, see my family. So Chris came along in his Rolls Royce, you know, as one does for your rock star. And uh, sitting in the Rolls Royce, we started listening to the tracks that, what, that became 90125. And it was extraordinarily good. It really shocked me because I just felt this is so happening. Except for a few vocal parts and a chorus missing here and there. But I think it's so happening sound-wise. And that was because it was that time of sampling. Uh, the guy that was doing most of the production was Trevor Horn. And he'd done an album with uh, Malcolm McLaren, who managed Six Pistols, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. called... Art uh, of Noise? Sorry? Was it Art of Noise? No, Art of Noise was another band. I'm glad you told me that, because I couldn't remember it. But it was called Duck Rock. Right. And it was really unbelievably hip. As, as albums go, using a lot of uh, radio announcers and a lot of radio signals, but very, very sampled stuff. And uh, they, you know, the, him, Trevor and Chris had actually made the album. And, and it wasn't a Yes album, it was a band called no, Cinema. No, it was called Cinema. And so I listened to it and I said, I looked at Chris and I said, my God, this is so good, so good. Well, what do you think about the song, Born of a Lonely Heart? And I said, well, the chorus is great. But the, the song's sort of meandering a bit. Well, what would you, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd, I'd make it more staccato. Uh, movie so. You always live your life. It's La Bamba. And so I did that. And uh, Who was originally singing? Uh, Trevor. Trevor Rabin. It was his song. You know, he... He's one of those guys that can write songs like There's No Tomorrow. And did you know Trevor before this? No. So I went to the studio 
to meet Trevor and Trevor Rabin. Everybody's so kind and interested. Trevor, Trevor Rabin, bless him, you know, just let me wander in and do what I want to do. And uh, we actually started writing the, the, the song lyric and melody for the verse of Owner. And he got through halfway through the first verse and then halfway through the beginning of the second verse, he said, hey, John, you just do it. You know what you're doing. <laughs> I was just saying it needs to be staccato. You know, and, uh, so at what point did cinema become yes? Well, that's what Chris said. When I said I'd like to do it, maybe, and I said, and if I do it, of course, we'll sound like yes. And he said, that's what we want. So I was very, very, very happy. How about John Anderson, everybody? Yeah. Thank you. So fast forwarding again, fast forwarding all the way to 2017. Sure. You become a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sure. How did that feel? Well, I said it's about bloody time. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't really care too much about it. But when we got in there, it was very, it was fun. You know, I was, I was very uh, scared. Uh, emotionally, I was very, I was shaking so many hands that night. And then you have to get up on stage and, you know, and you, you get hyper, hyperventilate because there's so 10,000 people there. And you think about the millions that are going to watch this. And it's so nice to be here. And I don't know what to say. Thank you so much. I love you all. And things like that. But all I wanted to do is get up on stage and sing the song, which we did. And we sounded pretty good. And when you're in a band off and on and on and off for sure. 50 years, sure. what is it like on a night like that where everybody gets on stage together? Well, it's wonderful, actually. Uh, it was great to see Bill Bruford. I hadn't seen him for about 20 years. And he stopped playing drums and uh, became a teacher of drums and music. And uh, see Steve again and uh, chase him around trying to get a word. You know, Steve, I'm, uh, Steve, where are you? <laughs> Just couldn't catch him, you know, man. And uh, it was really wonderful. It was a great feeling of achievement. And uh, then you think, now we got to get on with the, you know, get on with the, the next thing because it's just fleeting, you know. I didn't do it for prizes. Yes, I did. No, I didn't. <laughs> do you still enjoy going out there and playing? Oh God, live? yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's inbred in me, of course. I've just spent ten days in Orlando rehearsing my new band for One Thousand Hands. And this is a very eclectic sort of group of musicians. You have a, a girl, Chinese girl, who's really a remarkable violin player and uh, um, a keyboard player who plays trombone and banjo from Philippines and a percussionist from Trinidad and so on. And I'm from England and uh, the producer of the album is a great keyboard player and his brother's a bass player. Are they going to tour with you? Yeah. One thing I love about this album, A Thousand Hands, um, you know, just it's a who's who of guests over 30 years in the making. Chick Corea, Ian Anderson, Billy Cobham, Tower of Power, Larry Coriel, Jean-Luc Ponty, Robbie Steinhardt from Kansas, then Steve Howe, Chris Squire, Alan White, 
you know, all uh, of yeah. your former bandmates. Yeah. When I was listening to the album, I felt like I was getting a visit from an old friend. Good. Good. It felt like I everything like that. that I've ever loved about your music Thank was you. all back back again. And Thank you. I also love that there's a song on the album called Activate. Yeah. That's nine minutes long. So you're True. keeping up the tradition. <laughs> and that's the one with Ian Anderson. Yeah. One more time. John Anderson. Everybody. Thank you. Thanks again to John Anderson for spending time with us on Rock and Roll High School. In John's words, music is our spiritual connection to the soul. That's why people all over the world connect to music and to each other through music. We're glad John was here to share his stories about making the music that fosters that special connection. You can visit John online at johnanderson.com. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.